Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Today I want to cover a topic that has directly impacted my family. It's multiple sclerosis. Most people know at least one person with MS. It's considered to be one of the most common causes leading to disabilities in individuals. As of 2016, it was estimated that MS afflicts more than 1 million people worldwide and approximately 450,000 here in the U.S. alone. For some, the symptoms just come and go. They aren't outwardly apparent to those close to the patient. But for others, the symptoms are progressive and they can be debilitating over time with loss of mobility, excruciating pain, and in some cases, blindness. What makes the disease most frustrating is that there is no known cure. I've seen firsthand that the drugs commonly prescribed to treat symptoms of MS can be as debilitating as the disease itself. In recent months, I've spoken with a number of MS patients who have transitioned away from conventional treatment and are finding better results with medical cannabis. In the last couple of years, the National MS Society stated that the organization now supports the rights of MS patients to work with their healthcare providers to access cannabis in states where it's legal and where MS has been deemed a qualifying condition for medical use. As our guest, Dr. George Anastasov explains, this is very, very good news. I'm excited to introduce him, but first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute update to set the stage. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. I was happy to hear that you'll be talking about cannabis as an alternative therapy for multiple sclerosis. There are a number of reasons why I think it makes sense when you understand the nature of this disease. MS is a degenerative disease that results in loss of myelin, the protective layer of protein that surrounds our nerves. When this happens, nerves are directly exposed to damaging toxins, microbes, and autoimmune responses. Unprotected nerves can then cause disruption of nerve signaling that lead to muscle spasticity, severe pain, and loss of mobility, among other symptoms. While scientists are uncertain of the exact causes of MS, we do know that inflammation, depression, poor appetite, and stress can trigger progression of this disease. A deficiency in amino acids, phospholipids, and trace minerals can also be complicating factors. 
Unfortunately, there are no known cures for MS at this time. Conventional treatment protocols call for medications to try and slow the progression of myelin loss and a variety of medications that deal with each underlying symptom individually. Most commonly, these include steroids for inflammation, opiates and anti-inflammatories for pain, benzodiazepines for anxiety and muscle spasticity, stimulants for fatigue, and a host of other drugs to counter the numerous side effects. These drugs oftentimes do little to improve the quality of life for people suffering with MS. They can also lead to other debilitating problems such as compromised organ function and addiction, among others. Fortunately, we're beginning to understand the vital role the endocannabinoid system plays in governing the autoimmune and neurological systems, key factors in controlling MS and its symptoms. Cannabinoids such as THC and CBD have shown to be therapeutic for controlling pain, spasticity, depression, sleep loss, and other outward symptoms of MS. More importantly, we're beginning to understand the neuroregenerative and anti-inflammatory properties of cannabis, which can help explain why so many MS patients show improvement when they transition from conventional treatment to medical marijuana therapy. It may be some time before we can fully understand all the scientific reasons cannabis is beneficial for people with MS. But for now, as a physician, I would have no problem advising a patient with MS to try medical marijuana as an alternative treatment where it is legal to do so. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you so much, Dr. Donner. Oh, let's get started. I am delighted to introduce our guest today, Dr. George Anastasov. He's a board-certified craniofacial surgeon who holds medical and dental doctorates and an executive MBA with numerous professional and managerial certifications. His clinical practice includes teaching at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and Beth Israel Medical Center in New York. He's also a visiting professor at Willems University in Munster, Germany. Elected by who is who in medicine, as well as who's who in business professionals, numerous times, he's the receiver of multiple national and international professional and humanitarian awards. Having been actively involved in research and development in medicine and biotechnology since 1987, he has published multiple peer-reviewed articles as well as authored and co-authored textbooks and lectured over 115 invited guest lectures nationally and internationally. Today, he's the chief executive and chairman of the board of Axim Biotechnologies. Dr. Anastasov was one of the founders and CEOs of Canchu Biotechnologies in 2012. He's one of the developers of the first cannabinoid-based controlled-release transoral mucosal chewing gum for delivery, and we'll be conducting a clinical trial specific to MS, which brings us to our topic today. Wow, that is one long list of credentials, doctor. <laughs> Thank you very much for your kind introduction, and Thank I'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very very interested in you know as as the topic it is near and dear to my heart because you know there's there's just so little that can be done for MS patients but like I said so many people are having um, success with cannabinoid based treatments but I'm really interested in hearing about the study that you have coming up on the oral chewing it's a chewing gum basically that's formulated is this uh, specific to MS, or how does that work? Yes, uh, thank you for your kind question. 
this gum is specifically designed for to treat the patients with uh, multiple sclerosis, with symptoms of pain and spasticity, which are the two most common symptoms of the disease. And we had a very nice introduction before me regarding the disease. There are four different types of MS. Uh, they, they, um, they have different symptoms. They have different progression, but they're all debilitating. Some of them more debilitating than others. So uh, it is well known that uh, certain cannabinoids, and as of today, there is more than 140 of them, actually 141, uh, have differential effects on different systems. But I think that the key with multiple sclerosis is to understand that the, the well, if you will, the beginning of this, uh, all of these processes are based on uh, infl inflammatory reaction and inflammation. That's what causes the breakdown of the myelin and, and what happens later on. So we do know that CBD in particular has excellent um, anti-inflammatory properties. THC has good anti-nociceptive properties, so in patients who are struggling from pain. So the combination of the two may have additive effects and not may, it does. We know that because we are not the first company to utilize uh, cannabinoids for treatment of multiple sclerosis. Uh, we have a, there's a predecessor there, GW Pharmaceuticals, which have a product which is approved, if I'm not mistaken, in 28 countries, including the European Medicines, uh, Medicines Agency. It's approved in Canada, it's approved in Mexico, and it's approved in Colombia, yes. so all around us. Uh, but it's not approved by FDA yet, <clears throat> and there is a reason for that. But this medication contains uh, THC and CBD, 2.4 and 2.5 milligrams. So uh, we started our work some 14 years ago, 15 years ago, and uh, we started not with multiple sclerosis in particular, but our primary interest was pain. Uh, and when I say we, it's uh, my partners from the Netherlands. One is a craniofacial surgeon as well. The other one is a chemist and a biochemist. And so we're looking for novel, uh, if you will, classes of analgesics without opioids, without non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And we're also, and that's how we stumbled upon cannabis, if you will. So it was a long time before all of this exuberance in the United States about uh, cannabinoids and medical cannabis and so on. We were simply looking for something which is less addictive, which doesn't have the side effects uh, prone to the non-steroidal non anti-inflammatories. So, but then we're looking for delivery system because uh, as doctors, of course, uh, we are not supporters of uh, smoking of any kind, any type of combustive inhalation which is, of course, uh, inflammatory by itself for the upper respiratory tract and carries all array of uh, different problems with it. So we were looking into injections, into uh, tablets, suppositories, uh, oils, and so on. And so that's how we looked into the... Uh, there is an interesting model, of course, for nicotine replacement therapy, Nicorette, uh, and many other commercial names. And so we're looking to a similar model, but the problem with cannabinoids are multiple. So to develop a system which is transoral mucosal, which doesn't contain any solvents such as alcohol or others, and allows for the transmucosal penetration of the cannabinoids, which are, of course, as we know, lipid-soluble. They're not water-soluble. Also, to be able to protect the THC in particular from uh, oxidation and also catabolization, and also to predictably deliver this uh, compound within 20 minutes, uh, it is not that easy. So that's why it took so many years and so many different patents and technologies associated with technology. Because sometimes when people talk about chewing gum and everybody thinks uh, they just get uh, yeah, <laughs> gum and mix it with uh, cannabinoids, and here is your uh, cannabinoid chewing gum, 
Well, yes, you can do that, but either this uh, cannabinoid will not release at all from the gum because uh, it's bound to it, because it's not water-soluble, or if you somehow be able to convert it from uh, hydrophobic to hydrophilic form, the patients will just swallow it, and then you will have the effects of the first-pass metabolism, <coughs> or the so-called liver metabolism, when you have conversion of THC to 11-hydroxy-THC, which is extremely toxic metabolite, because what makes people, uh, let's say, paranoid and... Uh, hungry and uh, and all the other negative side effects of smoking marijuana, it's not the THC by itself, it's the 11-hydroxy THC. And in a smokable form, there is only 15 to 20% that goes through this uh, particular met- metabolic pathway. But if somebody is swallowing uh, these uh, preparations, such as oils or candies or cookies or any other form, well, 90% goes to this uh, metabolic pathway. So that's uh, how we uh, started. We were looking for a controlled release delivery system, which can predictably deliver these uh, uh, compounds. And But then we asked for scientific advice from the Dutch Ministry of Health as to how to move forward, uh, in what direction. And uh, we were introduced to the Department of uh, Neurology at the Free University of Amsterdam to Professor Eric Schroeder, who's the chairman of this department. And at the time, he had a PhD candidate. Her name is Roxanne Weyenberg. And her thesis was mastication, the act of chewing, is neuroprotection. Now, we're talking about multiple sclerosis, which obviously is a neurodegenerative disease, among many others, such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and so on and so forth. And so her thesis was based on the, um, uh, well, on the hypothesis that the act of chewing by itself has neuroprotective properties. And we didn't know nothing about it. I can admit freely here. And, but uh, <laughs> she eventually defended her thesis with... Uh, well, excellent. She's a professor at the university and she works on our program. So the fact that the act of chewing by itself has neuroprotective properties. And what exactly does it do? Well, the act of chewing improves the circulation of the cortex. It increases the velocity of the middle cerebral artery, which means that it improves the circulation for the cortex. It also increases the release of reward hormones such as serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine, and others. Uh, the act of chewing concentrates the, uh, uh, improves the concentration, improves the short and long-term memory, improves the performance of students uh, on academic tasks, um, and also it delays the degeneration and the cortical degeneration. So all of these uh, facts, combined with uh, cannabinoids uh, delivered in a predictable fashion, led us to the belief that we will have a superior system out there on the market where one and one doesn't equal two, but maybe three or four, because we are uh, hopeful that this effects are synergistic. That on one hand, uh, we will deliver these uh, uh, wonderful molecules, uh, which in this case is THC and CBD, it's five milligram and five milligram. And on the other, we will have the positive effects of the act of mastication. So that's the basis of our work. Wow, that's a lot of information to digest. One, This is very interesting that you say that the act of chewing actually has all of these benefits as well. In making a gum like this, you said it, it took you about 15 years to develop this. Is the actual chewing gum material itself treated with? Can that, how does that work? How does that work? Well, let, let me explain. It's a question of first... Um, extracting extremely high quality and consistent uh, molecules because when we speak about medical marijuana or medicinal marijuana, for anything to be medicinal, I mean, it has to comply with certain regulations. And um, in case of the FDA, it has to be less than 0.2% impurities or others, if you will. So mm-hmm. it has to be absolutely consistent molecule. 
And that's one of the problems with a, with a product which is not being approved by FDA and the uh, effort there is 2007, because this particular product contains 2% of others. Now, in our case, uh, the technology consists from the moment, uh, oh, first of all, let me backtrack that, that we use materials which are produced by the only company in the world, which is GNT, certified facility to produce pharmaceutical-grade cannabinoids. The name of the company is Bedrocan uh, in the Netherlands. It's controlled by the Dutch Ministry of Health, and it produces uh, for the last 30 years the very same the very same strains because they don't grow from seed, they grow from clones. So they basically clone the same plant for these last 30 years. Then we extract cannabinoids with 99.99% purity. Again, we're utilizing our own extraction technology, which is, we believe produces the highest yields and the purest cannabinoid extraction. Then we convert the cannabinoids from, hydrophil- from hydrophobic form, in other words, from something which is not water-soluble, something which is water-soluble, which is also our IP. And then we microencapsulate these cannabinoids, which increases the bioavailability of the final API three to four fold. So there is a lot that goes into, into technology there. It's the handling of the cannabinoids. It's the gum itself, the fabrication of the gum itself, because we have to make sure, as I explained before, that within 20 minutes we have at least 80% release of the active ingredients. And so, yeah, this is the, the technology. It's uh, using certain uh, components in the gun, which were not used uh, before us. We have two patents uh, on this. And then, of course, the handling of the cannabinoids by itself. Right, right. And in the Netherlands, they're, they're a lot farther ahead than we are here in the United States in terms of um, academic research on cannabis and that sort of thing. And it's been legal there for a number of years, hasn't it? Legal access uh, to cannabis? Well, I can't speak on, on politics uh, of the Netherlands. I mean, uh, we work with, uh, uh, with the uh, chairman of the Medical Cannabis Board there, Dr. Marco van der Velde. So um, the legalities are, I, I guess, similar to certain states in the United States, such as California or Oregon and so on. Uh, but um, again, research has been going on there. Research is ongoing right now with one of our compounds, but for a different indication, which is uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, but I, as, as far as the politics, I, I truly cannot comment. I'm, I'm a doctor and somewhat of a businessman, but not a politician. <laughs> I can't really make a comment as to what uh, what is the difference or what are the similarities between the two. All I know is that uh, for us, uh, the barrier, and not only for us, but for any company which is dealing with uh, cannabinoids, the barriers to entry are extremely high because these are still Schedule One substances. And whether we agree with uh, this uh, definition or not, but we need government permits for every shipment from our from the growing facility to the extraction facility to overseas and then back to the Netherlands. So for every shipment of this, we need special permits so for Schedule One substances. So the barriers to entry are are quite high. So yeah. it's not that easy to do research. If everything is done by the rules, if everything is done. In, in, um, with the support of the Ministry of Health and academic support, yes, it, it is doable, but uh, not otherwise. So it's it's pretty strictly controlled, I must say. Yeah, and when it comes to treating patients with MS, what has been your experience in seeing the difference between traditional protocols for MS and and cannabis as a treatment? So as described before me, the patients on, with multiple sclerosis are an extremely unfortunate group because there's nothing out there which consistently treats all the symptoms of the, of the disease. Because currently
currently the disease is treated still symptomatically. The inflammatory phase is treated with anti-inflammatories. Of course, the pain is treated with opioids. Then you have baclofen and others. But all of these have side effects, and none of them really capture the whole spectrum of the disease. And again, the problem also with multiple sclerosis is that it's not very well known precisely what is the cause, what causes the multiple sclerosis. Yeah, but one thing is for sure, it's neuroinflammation. So I think that in the case of multiple sclerosis, not only we have to be active once the disease is diagnosed and hopefully, and hopefully in an early stage, but also to be proactive because there are certain cannabinoids such as cannabidiol. They don't have any psychotropic properties, but, um, but they have excellent anti-inflammatory properties. So if we can prove that uh, this particular uh, compounds such as uh, cannabidiol or cannabigerol in the future, that they do have the neuroprotective properties, whether it's in a chewing gum form or any other acceptable delivery format, I think that what we should be looking at is, is the prophylaxis of the disease and not treating it when it's already in advanced uh, recurrent stage. Right. So, yeah, so as a, as a um, preventative measure, it seems like the neuroprotective qualities would be fantastic. I agree. Yes, yes. As long as we can prove that this is the case. The problem with that, and we are embarking upon this, is that these are longitudinal studies. So we have to prove within, let's say, 10 years that there is a difference between one group taking these compounds and another group which is taking placebo, which is not that easy to do, of course, right. because how can you stratify the two groups of potential sufferers? But that's the only way to, I mean, to, to bring it to science. <laughs> yeah, well, especially since, you know, no two people with MS have exactly the same symptoms. I mean, the, they seem to um, come and go, uh, the symptoms. So that must be very difficult to control in a setting like that. It is very difficult. It's very difficult to stratify the patients. There are four different types of MS. There are some um, are extremely uh, rapid and progressive. Some are remitting. Some are combinations. So it's difficult to put everybody in the same in the same group, and also it's very difficult to find one compound which is effective against all the symptoms. So when we're talking about symptoms, in, in our case, we're looking for patients with pain and specificity, and that's a, the key for, for our patients. So I mean, most of the forms of multiple sclerosis, of course, uh, carry the spasms and the resultant muscle, muscle aches and pains. So if we can prove statistically, with statistical, statistical significance that the patients who are taking our preparations versus placebo and then comparing it also with other existing medications and showing uh, uh, higher efficacy, I think that uh, we will prove our concept. Yeah. So working with the FDA and getting a clinical trial together, have you, are you hands-on in, in applying for the ability to conduct these studies? Yes. We work with... Uh, a CRO, which is called QPS, and it's an international contract research organization, and also Xendo, X-E-N-D-O. And uh, so with these two organizations, we've been working together for the last five years to create the protocols for phase one, phase two, phase three, and can, of course in cooperation with EMA, which is the European Medicines Agency, and FDA. So yes, everything has to be done in, in accordance with the regulatory agency. And how far along are you with the studies? How far along are we? Well, we hope, and again, I mean, the clinical trials are very tricky. We hope to complete phase three of our MS clinical trial by the first quarter of 2018. 
uh, that's regarding MS, uh, we will complete our IBS study, which contains also cannabinoids in a chewing gum form uh, by June of this year. We have completed another trial on patients with dermatological conditions, which is eczema, psoriasis, and vitiligo. So this is already done. And we have a number of other studies which are in our pipeline. Oh, wow. So, so not just MS here. You're, you're talking no. a, a, a broad spectrum of conditions. Yes, yes. Yes, we are. Because there is a, a never a certainty that everything will go according to our wishes. <laughs> so something may get delayed, certain things may have to be rerouted or reformulated. So we're not uh, we're trying to be not one circus pony, but uh, to have a few different projects going simultaneously. It's quite exciting to see these studies come out because I mean we have lots and lots of anecdotal evidence that cannabis is effective in treating so many different things. But you know. Right. I mean, it's, it's true because, I mean, before we can label something as, uh, as efficient, we have to have statistical significance. I mean, we're working on nine different preparations currently, not all chewing gums, but many different types, combination drugs, but for 14 different indications. So uh, we, at, at least we have to have a proof of concept study, which is showing, yes, indeed, in this particular group of individuals, we have X percentage of uh, improvement of symptoms before we can say, with uh, well, with certain level of certainty that um, yes, okay, it works. But then again, for to pass FDA scrutiny, it has to be multi-center, randomized, placebo-controlled trial that has to be a center in the United States, and the results have to be reproducible. So it's not that easy. It may work on one patient. Of course, there is the placebo effect and so on, and the myself feel so much better. I feel fantastic. I feel great. And but somebody else will try it and say, well, you don't do nothing for me, or make me feel worse. So, I mean, to yeah. label something as, as efficient, it, it's a long path. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's it's really phenomenal. And have um, is there is there going to be a version? Do you think of the of the gum that is just CBD based? Yes, we do have. Well, we have a CBD gum on the market for the last three years, which is 10 milligrams of CBD, but we're investigating now a 50 milligram CBD gum in patients with IBS. Um, and there will be also a higher dose of, um, uh, of CBD. It will be 100 milligrams CBD for totally different uh, indications, but we have uh, multiple uh, dosages of CBD gum. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a, kind of an exciting uh, delivery platform you've got there. I, 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 I imagine well, that it's it's going to be easier for people to kind of control their dosing too. Of course. Well, and and also look at the positive effects. If we look back to the nicotine replacement therapy model, I mean, there are many different ones. You have uh, pills, antipsychotics. You have transdermal systems. You have chewing gum, and it seems that the people who are using the chewing gum to uh, cut their cravings uh, for for cigarettes are doing the best. And our thinking is that perhaps it's not necessarily the nicotine inside the gum. It may be the chewing gum by itself because many people quit smoking just by chewing Wrigley's or whatever. I'm not endorsing any brand. But I think that the act of chewing does have a beneficial effect because, again, the act of chewing releases these hormones, reward, so-called reward hormones, serotonin, dopamine. And people feel much happier. I mean, if you look at the person who is eating, yeah, they're usually happy, <laughs> unless they're eating uh, well Mexican pepper, which will uh, make them cry. But but I can tell you, the act of chewing by, by itself is, uh, I mean, uh, does have all of these uh, positive effects. And Roxanne's uh, PhD, 300 plus pages, 
well, substantiating why this is so with uh, functional MRIs and, and so on. So uh, I think that, yes, it will be a more desirable delivery form because it's not a pill, it's not an injection, it's not a transdermal system, which may be irritative, and it's pleasant, uh, and it has uh, a positive uh, effect as well because if you think about another component, speaking about MS, patients who are taking baclofen, the number, side, the one, number one side effect is dry mouth. And by smoking something, let's say containing cannabinoids, cannabidiol or whatever that may be, it dries even more the oral mucosa. Or if you're using a spray containing alcohol and cannabinoids, well, imagine putting alcohol on a dry mucosa. It's very painful and unpleasant. And on the other side, uh, chewing gum, it actually increases the salivary production. It increases the flow of saliva. So I think there are a lot of uh, beneficial effects with our uh, system. But uh, time will tell if, if we are right or wrong. Yeah. For MS particularly, the neuroprotective is something that I think people will really be looking forward to um, learning more about how, how that's going to work through a clinical trial. Because I don't think, has there been a clinical trial with cannabis that you know about so far? For multiple sclerosis? Yes. Yes. Um, Sativex, which I, I mentioned before, it's uh, 2.5 and 2.4 milligrams of THC and CBD. And it's an oil spray based on alcohol, and it's approved in 28 countries, maybe even more today. Yeah, but not yeah, but in the U.S. yet. No, 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 yeah. not in the U.S. The only product approved in the United States uh, with, with cannabis or, well, cannabinoids, it's synthetic, it's dronabinol, or the commercial name of marinol. There are probably three or four or five uh, uh, generics there. So that's the only product approved in the United States. It's 100% synthetic THC, and it's approved for treatment of, uh, uh, of uh, chemotherapy-associated uh, lack of appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Yeah, I've always found that pretty curious. I mean, you've got such an amazing plant that in its organic form, is incredibly therapeutic, and yet they went out of their way to make a synthetic <laughs> version of it. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I agree. And maybe that was the political situation in 1985. Yeah, they did have to come up something to treat these uh, patient populations, and later on, the patients with HIV/AIDS, because there was evidence that certain cannabinoids were efficient in improving the appetite and eliminating cachexia. So perhaps that's why it was approved uh, in 1985. And it's also not Schedule 1, it's Schedule 3. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But again, yeah, I can't comment on the regulatory agencies. Yeah, oh, well, again, <laughs> that's political <laughs> in a way. Exactly, exactly. So let me ask you this. How, how did you become interested in cannabis to start with? My partners and myself, we were looking into novel classes of, uh, of analgesics, painkillers. And um, yeah, we were quite disappointed with what was on the market then. Same thing on the market today is the opioids and non-steroidals and the combinations between the two. So now we have in this country an uh, epidemic of uh, drug-related deaths uh, affecting every state in the nation. Um, and, of course, um, the non-steroidals, we know the cases with the COX inhibitors and so on, when we had cerebrovascular uh, accidents and heart attacks and the gastric problem is ibuprofen with uh, uh, with all of their complications. So we're looking for something which is uh, perhaps similar in its uh, in its effects, but without uh, the side effects. And that's how we came up to cannabis. 
So it was strictly looking for a novel class of analgesics. And novel, of course, there is nothing novel because this one has been used for 2,000 years, at least for, for these particular purposes. But we were looking for the alternative delivery system. But that, that's how we, we came to, to cannabinoids. It was in search for a novel class of analgesics. Yeah. And um, you were quite ahead of your time then as well, I mean, in, in terms of the United States anyway, because I think what the first medical marijuana law was passed in 1999 here in the United States. Well, uh, I mean, again, these are all political issues, you yeah. know, the laws and so on. But, uh, I mean, cannabis has been known for thousands of years. So, <laughs> and, yes. and it's not only us, there are many other companies, so small and big, uh, which have uh, done quite a bit in, in this respect, both in uh, naturally extracted products and synthetic products. I mean, there are hundreds of molecules of synthetic cannabinoids known and uh, patented. So, uh, I mean, I think that the research has been going on quietly <laughs> without much uh, noise out there. But I think that now when the winds have uh, changed direction and when it's uh, proven uh, through multiple studies, I mean, just to give you an example, in the uh, tiny country of Israel, currently there are 128 research projects registered related to cannabis. <laughs> so wow. I mean, things, things are, are moving, uh, I think, and uh, there, is no, there is no going back. Of course, unexpected things may, may happen. You remember what happened with, um, uh, I believe the company was Boal, or Botal from, uh, from Portugal, and which was working on uh, FAC inhibitors, which do play a significant role in the endocannabinoid system. And people died, and others were brain dead, and so on. So one has to be careful. I mean, immediately it was linked to cannabis, and it has nothing to do with cannabis because it's a regulator of the endocannabinoid system. But but nonetheless, unexpected things may happen. Why? Because this plant is so incredibly complex. We have 141 cannabinoids. We have 400 plus terpenes, and God knows what else in it. And what is the interaction between every, each and every one of these elements among themselves, and what are they? effect individually. I mean, it's an extremely complex plant, so it does need a lot of research, lots and needs a lot of funding, but uh, probably the rewards may be, well, <laughs> I think incredibly um, worth the effort. Yeah, it's, I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. I mean, I... I can see um, the developments in cannabis. You know, once once people do really get a handle on all of these different interactions, I mean, cannabis could theoretically replace so many of the synthetic drugs that are out there. I mean, do you agree with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. <laughs> Not only drugs. I mean, there are fifty thousand different uh, fifty thousand different products that can be produced from the cannabis plant. <laughs> yeah. Just about anything. Pharmaceuticals is the only very small part, but you can produce anything. Biofuels, uh, building materials, electric batteries, uh, I mean, you name it. <laughs> Bust up, <laughs> insulation, whatnot. So, I mean, I think it's an incredibly interesting plant. It's probably the oldest plant on the earth. It's 27 million years old, proven. So, I mean, there, I guess there is a reason for this plant to be around. Yeah. And to survive all of these years, the floods and uh, and fires and comets and whatnot. Yeah, it, it grows in <laughs> drought. I mean, it's it's pretty. It's it's a very hardy plant. And yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, and actually, you know, I, you were saying that the medical uses go back two thousand. I think the the um, earliest record um, of cannabis being used as a medicine um, was found in a bag, a Chinese medicine bag, 
um, in an archaeological site um, that dates back 4,000 years. Like, so that would be the first evidence of medical use of cannabis. I just think it's fascinating, you know, something that, uh, and, and not to mention the fact that um, we have a, a, a huge system in our body that, that naturally is unlocked by cannabis, the endocannabinoid system. It's just phenomenal. Of course, of course. But a word of caution, though, again, this plant is extremely complex. It, it the the product what what it produces the uh, cannabinoid composition the cannabinoid strength and so on depends on so many different factors it depends uh, what what type of earth was it seeded on what type of light what type of water um, uh, when was it picked up in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening and um, uh, apparently <laughs> there is no more complex plant than this one because no other plant uh, plant requires so many different uh, conditions to be met. So the word of cautious is that um, uh, one should be very careful, especially in the so-called medical cannabis site, when they're buying one brand or one name and expecting the very same quality they will have tomorrow or the next day or next year or whatnot. Because it's not truly regulated. If there is only one company in the world that uh, has GMP qualification to produce those plants, it means that there is still a lot that has to be done for <clears throat> for. Uh, well, ensuring the public safety, if you will, when the patients or consumers know for sure that what they're getting is what, what they're getting, that the uh, cannabinoid composition is the same, that the terpene composition is the same. And it's happening. It's happening. I mean, I, mean, I see out there already, I mean, there are websites and so on showing uh, analytics for different plants. It's just a question of consistency, and I'm sure it will come. Yeah. And also, I mean, as they start to develop standards, too, and and... A lot of states are getting involved now in, in regulating which sorts of um, uh, pest uh, pest uh, um, deterrents and that sort of thing can be used. You know, fungicides, pesticides. Um, well, ideally, none of this. Yeah, <laughs> ideally. Right. I mean, they, they should be they should be grown indoors. The light should be consistent. The water and the nutrients should be exactly the same. I mean, um, I'm not endorsing bedrocan in any way. Yeah, but it took them 30 years, I mean, to be able to isolate every chemical component there in the plant. So these are very difficult processes. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that technology develops, and maybe what was 30 years up to today, maybe it will take five years from today on. But uh, that, that's the right path to go, because we're dealing with uh, people's health. With the, uh, Many people are immunosuppressed for taking cannabinoids because there is nothing out there or the immunosuppressive drugs have uh, uh, tremendous side effects. So I think that we have to be very careful what we're giving to the public and to make sure that uh, it is what it is, uh, what we are prescribing or uh, suggesting. Yeah. So um, it, is, these, is the study closed now for new participants? Uh, the study will take place in three centers. One is in the Free University of Amsterdam. One is in Great Britain, in the University of Plymouth. And there will be a third site in the United States, which uh, I'm not so sure that they uh, have agreed yet to which site it will be. It will be in Boston, but uh, I, I cannot disclose exactly which one it will be. Right. So as we, as we come closer to that, well, there's going to be a fourth site, actually. I'm sorry to say that, uh, in Switzerland. So uh, as we come closer to the, to the American uh, arm of the study, I, I think that it, it may be open, that it, it may be open for participants and depends on the numbers numbers of the participants that we will have. It's probably 100 patients, but uh, let me not jump too, too far ahead. 
Right. And all local to wherever it is in Boston, then, I would imagine. I would uh, presume so, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and how long well, do you anticipate? the good anticip- thing is, oh, go ahead. <laughs> that it's, a, it's, a, it's a short study, that uh, we will have results yeah, once, uh, I mean, once everything is done in clinics, and, yeah, I mean, again, if we have all the results tabulated by the end of the first quarter of 2018, we anticipate to go through regulatory process and have the, the drug ready by the end of 2018, not necessarily by, by FDA, but hopefully, um, uh, probably first in um, certain countries in the Netherlands where the study will go, and uh, once it's there, then it will be received by EMA. The FDA may take a little bit longer, yeah, I would anticipate, but uh, if there are no fundamental uh, flaws there, I think that um, yeah, that we should be good by 2019. So, and this is if, if the FDA approves after the study, then will this be, will this... Um uh, be available as a pharmaceutical drug would be, or would it still be uh, regulated as the Schedule One and only available in states where medical marijuana is legal? No, it will be available as a pharmaceutical by prescription drug. Wow. Um, now, speaking about, uh, I will give you an example, which is Marinol. Marinol is Schedule Three. It's a gelatin capsule, soft capsule. However, mm-hmm. the contents of uh, uh, this marinol is, is called dronabinol. This is a Schedule One substance. So if somebody breaks the capsule and pulls out the dronabinol, now they're dealing with a Schedule One substance. However, in the dispensary form, which it is available, in the soft gel capsule is a Schedule Three. So we will be looking not to have Schedule One because Schedule One that means that it's not going to be available at all. I mean, a <laughs> yeah, pharmacist right. or a doctor cannot prescribe it. So it has to be regulated and scheduled as at least Schedule 2 or Schedule 3. Um, we are working on a, a drug which is a replacement for Marinol, which is also synthetic uh, THC, but instead of a capsule form in a controlled release chewing gum. So we would hope, and we are waiting for an advice from the FDA, to have it regulated as Schedule 3 as well. And why is that? Because uh, we think that the abuse poten- potential for a gelatin capsule is much higher than a chewing gum. Why is that? Because it's so easy to puncture a capsule and extract what is inside, then to try to extract back the cannabinoids from a chewing gum. It's virtually impossible and doesn't make any sense. So, so we, we hope that um, uh, once we come to this point, FDA will reasonably weight all the options because it's all about abuse potential. Uh, recently, there was a drug approved to a company which is in the same space, and it was approved to Schedule 2. Schedule 2 does complicate things quite a bit, and it's the very same dronabinol, it's the same molecule, but for a different indication. And the uh, logic of FDA was that because it's in an oil form, the uh, abuse potential is quite high. And it's probably true because the oil can be vaped and, well, maybe many, many different things with it, which is not the case with the chewing gum. I mean, uh, it's, uh, again, as I said, it's virtually impossible, only in la- laboratory Environment, maybe it would be possible to extract the the you know, the, the components, the THC and the CBD. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. I mean, uh, it will be extremely expensive and doesn't make. Right, but this particular this particular trial is not the synthetic though. This is the actual um, organic yeah. form of THC and CBD. From yes, it's extracted from uh, it is THC and CBD which are extracted from plant from plants. Uh-huh. Right. But they're concentrated and purified to 99.99% purity. So they fall within 
the FDA's uh, cutoff point for, for purity. Right. Because if you look at dronabinol, dronabinol is also not produced from uh, carbon and water. Uh, it's produced uh, by, uh, by a synthetic pathway from lemonin. Um, so again, it's not uh, entirely synthetic. So there's a little bit of semantics here. You have synthetics, you have biosynthetics, and you have extraction form, forms. But as, uh, as far as we are assured by our regulatory uh, partners, it will be considered by FDA as uh, compliant with synthetics because it's, uh, well, almost 100% pure. Right, right. And then, of course, the delivery method, um, which cannot be altered, is what would allow you to move that into a Schedule 2 or 3, correct? But that's our hope. Yes, okay. <laughs> it, no, it, it's, it mean, this is all very interesting be. to me because, um, I mean, so few uh, FDA-approved studies are underway right now, and, I mean, more and more hopefully will be um, as people get approval, but it's, you know, they're few and far between, so it's a process that I don't really fully understand, so I actually very much appreciate hearing your take on it. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, it's a long pathway. I, I must say that uh, to develop a new molecular entity, means a new new formulation for, for a drug, the average is 10 years and two and a half billion with B dollars. Wow. <laughs> the good thing is that uh, cannabis is not a new molecular entity. It's been around for a very long time, as you said, 4,000 years perhaps. So these molecules are very well known. They're very well studied. And uh, so we don't have to start with everything from scratch, which uh, helps quite a bit. <laughs> because yeah. if uh, it is a new molecular entity, the pathway is significantly longer and much, much more expensive, prohibitively expensive, especially for smaller companies like we are, maybe not for Pfizer or whatever, Johnson & Johnson, but for us it would be. Right. So with, with um, cannabinoids, have you seen actually um, results of like myelin production, um, any regenerative qualities when it comes to MS so far? Uh, we personally, no, we haven't done studies like that. Yeah. Because, I mean, uh, how can you, well, <laughs> I mean, unless it's a, uh, it's an animal model, which is trained to chew a gum. <laughs> right, no, no, <laughs> very no. It's difficult to, to implement. I mean, uh, there are, of course, uh, models for uh, demyelination. There are models um, yeah, for different types of neurodegenerative diseases in, in small animals and also in petri dishes. But again, this is a bench, yeah, these are bench um, uh, studies which not necessarily translate into clinical efficiency. So no, I mean, we are going directly into patients and we will uh, compare with other studies done before us uh, with uh, similar compounds and to see what the clinical outcomes are. But to see direct uh, re of, of nerves, uh, no, I don't think that anyone has done that or, or will do that. It, it, it's a question of clinical symptomology. It's a question of the quality of life. And that's what we are investigating. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very excited to hear the results of, of the study for sure. Um, what, would you, what would you tell um, medical professionals who are um, right now considering... Um, learning more about cannabis as a therapeutic option, because I mean, there's, what I <laughs> there is some resistance well, um, in the medical community, but then there are a lot of pe medical professionals who are really advocating for um, at more education and that sort of thing. What would you tell well, healthcare practitioners? I think that this is the key. You just mentioned it. The key is education. When I was in medical school quite a few years ago, I didn't learn nothing good about cannabis. 
<laughs> I learned that it's an addictive drug and so on. And when I came uh, to, to the U.S., uh, well, very similar situation. So in today, medical schools across the United States, there are very few which do have courses on the beneficial uh, properties of cannabis. But uh, all that said, I see more and more uh, courses available in the United States and internationally. There is the ICRS, and there are so many different organizations populated by serious researchers with uh, tens of uh, years of experience working with cannabis, whether it's in the United States or in uh, Uruguay or in Israel or in the Netherlands or whatever that may be. So I would say that uh, ignoring something is not the best uh, way to learn something. Mm-hmm. I think that if uh, doctors have uh, interest, uh, the data is readily available there. And there are sources which are reliable and sources which are not reliable. Recently came a, a, a huge publication by the American Academy of Sciences uh, dedicated to cannabis and to the level of clinical evidence as of today of which diseases are uh, beneficially affected by and which are not, where the evidence is lacking. So I think that if anybody who has interest in, in this field, and the field is incredibly broad because it's not one specialty. It's not only urology, it's oncology, it's hematology, it's um, uh, psychiatry, and, 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 well, anyway, name it. <laughs> yeah, anesthesiology, real pain management. So it's an incredibly broad field, and um, uh, thankfully there is information available today which gives us, um, well, set point, if you will, as to where we stand today and what is happening today and where things are going. Also, of course, there is the you know, clinicaltrials.gov, which is controlled by the FDA, and where uh, it, it's very easy to see which trials are being handled today and see the progress of these uh, trials and the results. So I think that the people should open their eyes and always um, well look into something which is out of the box. And uh, I think that in this case, that's cannabis. Now, does it mean that cannabis is panacea? Of course not. Yeah, I mean, we have to look as to what is it efficient against, is it effective in every patient or not in every patient? I mean, because there is a truly much more unknown than known about the plant, even when you're comparing different cannabinoids, THC, CBD. Well, we know about the pediatric epilepsy, and there is so much um, information, if you will, in the media. And they're showing little children, some of them uh, says, oh, I've been on THC oil and I'm seizure-free for 360 days. And then there's another child that, oh, I've been on CBD oil for... 355 days and I'm seizure-free. And uh, one scratches their head and says, okay, well, what is it? Is it the THC? Is it the CBD? Is it something else? Is it the terpenes? So <laughs> the research is needed. <laughs> yeah. There is some anecdotal evidence there, no doubt about it. Is it a uh, Schedule 1? I will conserve my comment for that. But <laughs> I think that the research should continue. And uh, I think that we will learn uh, much more and hopefully uh, all, uh, mostly positive <laughs> about the plant. Yeah, well, it, it seems to be. I mean, it seems, it seems we're headed in that direction. And, and you're right. I've seen a lot more um, educational opportunities opening up right now for healthcare practitioners and for patients as well. And Absolutely, yes. You know, yes. and... and Patients, some, you know, one of the one of the biggest obstacles um, to patients uh, learning for themselves is the stigma attached to it, and that's a whole other subject. Of course, but, yes. Well, the stigma and also available delivery forms, because uh, if you look into smokable forms, whether it's uh, cigarettes or vapes or whatever other uh, methods are there. I mean, these are not the best. If you're looking into vapes, they have cadmium batteries and whatnot. That's uh, that's carcinogenic uh, source. 
Uh, if you're looking into oils, these are very high caloric uh, intake uh, substances. So if it's a pediatric child, they may blow up uh, in weight. Uh, so it's, it's also a question of the uh, delivery system. So whether it's phrase or chewing gum or suppository or whatever, but they have to be improved delivery format uh, for this uh, particular molecule. So it's not only a question of purity and, and quality, but also delivery systems. I think that that's where we are kind of falling behind a little bit as well. Yeah, and, and that's one of the biggest problems with edibles um, from what, exactly. you know, and people complain about that all the time. There's just absolutely no way to make that dosing precise. Exactly. And, I mean, everybody's individual. Everybody's liver works a little bit different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's some people, they eat this uh, brownie, let's say, and they feel the result in one hour. And other people, that uh, people that may happen in three hours, and they may be on the road driving or, you know, signing their wedding decree or something. So yeah, I think that um, the edible form is easy because the patients, especially the ones who probably, uh, well, don't have access to more superior delivery systems, it's easy to do to do at home. But the dosing is very difficult and the effects are uncontrollable. Thanks God nobody dies from this, of course. Uh, but uh, still there is a uh, need for, for improved delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's all very exciting. Um, what you're doing and you know thank you so much for for uh, sharing all of this with us today any last thoughts you'd like for our audiences to know about um, the upcoming study or uh, what you're doing well I would like to thank you very much for your time and for the excellent questions I hope that uh, I was able to answer them somewhat and I think that we should uh, keep the dialogue open and keep the public informed as to what's happening around here, not only regarding our products uh, and, and our systems, but what else is happening uh, in this world. And so uh, I will be available anytime for, for your further questions. Well, thank you so much for that. And um, I really look forward to seeing the study. And, you know, if, there, if ever there's a time that um, you have some research that you'd like to share, please do reach out. and. I would love to revisit this topic with you when you get a little bit closer to finalizing this as well. So, yes, let's do stay in touch. Sure. More than that, Okay. Well, Pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, <laughs> a big thank you to our guest, Dr. George Anastasov. Um, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the study and the work that he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. I'll post his bio and information there as well. And many thanks to our producer, Wendy West, and the team here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. Uh, I'd also like to express our gratitude to our radio sponsor, HempMeds.com. We could not be doing this without you. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. My name is Snowden Bishop, and I'll be back again next week. Until then, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always where I feel The blues do fall in, and sheets made forever across the great divide in my
Pure CBD is a new and unique fresh tasting spray product which delivers an exact measured amount of the highest grade 100% cannabis oil with each spray. Each tube holds a 30-day supply when used as directed. No smoke, no mess. For discreet use, Pure CBD can be used anywhere. Pure CBD from Zephyr Labs.